Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are doing something brand new for Virtual Legality. We're actually going to respond to another person's YouTube video. And this isn't what we usually do on this channel. It's not what we usually do uh, on this series. Uh, But after this video was posted by a YouTuber called Accursed Farms, I received a number of messages on my Twitter and social media asking me to respond. Uh, I was asked that because a number of the things that Accursed Farms claims and says in their video differ from things that I've said in virtual legality in the past, and people were interested uh, in making up the difference. So after I got enough of those messages, uh, I decided that I would put together a virtual legality just to talk about uh, Accursed Farms video and to really kind of dive in a little deeper especially on the legal points that he makes, as well as on the business ones, so that we can have a robust discussion about what it is that he claims. Now, before we do that, I want to issue a caveat. As I said at the start of this video, I'm not in the business of responding to other YouTubers. I don't want to take anyone down. I don't want to add to the negativity in this space that I see as often as I do. And one of the things that I'd like to point out is, after reviewing the entirety of Accursed Farms video, I do think he is acting in good faith. I do think he wants a better gaming industry, just like we do on virtual legality, and he wants to improve what he sees as problematic business practices. I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever, and I don't want to dissuade anybody from engaging in these topics in the future. I think it's a good thing. We started virtual legality to try to help increase the overall knowledge base of folks that are very interested in the gaming industry, in the information technology industry, and in business and law in general. So anybody that's engaging on those topics in this space, I'm entirely in favor of. But the best way to get good engagement on those topics is to be informed and to have these discussions where people can agree and or disagree uh, and be knowledgeable about what it is that you're talking about. As long as you're respectful and you respect other people's opinions, I think that that can be a good, productive, fruitful discussion. And that's what I hope you get out of this video. Uh, but let's take a look at what Accursed Farms actually put out there, just as a kind of preamble. Uh, and the title of his video is Games as a Service is Fraud. You see his title there, Games as a Service is Fraud. It's already got half a million views. It's been circling around the internet for a little while now, and it's five days old at this point in time. And as I said, I got a number of messages on it, and my channel isn't quite big enough to actually think that those messages came from just folks that watch virtual legality. So clearly, this video has met uh, with a fairly big audience around the internet. So let's take a look at virtual legality for a second before we dive into discussions on this topic specifically. I did want to point out uh, that one of the things that really jumps out in this video is the notion of how video games can be preserved and a general concern about whether or not we are creating an industry that's essentially going to self-destruct like a Mission Impossible timer after a certain period of time. 
And as you know, if you followed this channel or if you followed the series, I'm also concerned with that topic. I'm amenable to what Accursed Farms is saying. And I've got here highlighted virtual legality number 43, which is from a couple weeks ago. And it talked about when Drive Club and Sony announced that they were going to take down the Drive Club servers. And I called it, it belongs in a museum, Drive Club and the war for gaming's future. And I talk about the nature of preservation in a games as a service industry at this point in time, and that things need to change in the law, things need to change in the way policy is handled at these giant companies in order to preserve some of this history that we're experiencing if we really love video games. And I have no reason to believe Accursed Farms doesn't love video games. Uh, as a matter of fact, throughout his video, uh, as incendiary as the topic title is, I get throughout it that he really loves games, he wants to see them thrive, he wants to see them succeed just like I do. Uh, but I do have an issue with the way he's presented his topic, and so I want to have that conversation on this video. So let's take a look at the very first section uh, that he talks about, which are potential traits that could define games as a service. So he's starting out his video, and he's putting together what is games as a service, and he's unhappy with the definitions that are put forth. I've highlighted the slide where he's having this discussion. It's very early on in the video. But he puts all of these out there, and what's actually going to happen in the video is he's going to cross almost all of them out, except for online only. And when he crosses them out, he's trying to arrive at a definition which he thinks is leading what he calls a number of times in the video a propaganda charge from corporations, that they are trying to put a nice face on what he sees as a problematic business practice. And so he puts all these things out here and he says, well, extra online features don't make it games as a service, microtransactions don't, subscription fees don't, frequent updates don't, uh, and massively multiplayer games don't have to be games as a service. He, he basically arrives at the only real thing connecting them is online only. And then he puts forth this definition, and this is where my eyebrows were initially raised in watching this video, which is he puts forth the definition games as a service the business practice of players not having control of whether they can play a game due to a company withholding that function. A negative definition, in other words, something that doesn't exist. Games as a service only exist by the withholding of some other aspect of their being. And I think that definition can work from a certain point of view, uh, but it also gives away the game a little bit from the very start. So obviously when you're creating a video called Games as a Service is Fraud, you've started out by determining that you want to be incendiary. You want to be as aggressive as possible. You want to put out your topic as aggressively as possible. I don't necessarily agree with that approach, and this definition is one of the reasons why. I think we can all kind of agree that games as a service, for the most part, are games that require, at some fundamental level, connections to a server that is not on the client side of the software that you're otherwise playing. When we think of games as a service, we think of games like Destiny 2 and Division 2 and games that essentially have you interacting in a uh, virtual environment on a consistent ongoing basis. That if that virtual environment wasn't being fed in some respect uh, by an outside server, uh, by someone else on a different computer, then they would no longer function. If you ever had any latency or any problems with your connection on the Division 2 or other similar games, you know that the server is functioning to make the game possible for you because your bullets don't hit in time, you get all wonky in terms of your rubber banding, and the game isn't as fun to play. Uh, now, if he wanted to come out with a video that basically said these companies uh, were creating connections to a server that didn't need to be there uh, or that were otherwise defrauding customers on that basis, I think we would have something to talk about. But he doesn't go there. He basically says that Destiny 2 and Division 2, uh, which are going to be the primary ones that I highlight in this video because of the ones I'm the most familiar with, uh, are uh, 
games as a service solely because the company is withholding the function of whether people can play the game. And I think that's a little bit disingenuous. And it's one of the reasons I raised my eyebrow because I look at it and say games as a service is something unique from a game that you just get code for and you play solely on your PlayStation or your Xbox. And so we need to start to discuss how they're unique to see if they actually are something new, something different and something that requires a different thought process. And I look at them and say, yes, when you're playing Division 2, you're not playing it just on your PlayStation. You're playing it with a connection to the internet. And that connection to the internet makes possible the interactions you have with other people in that game. It makes possible the way the AI serves up loot tables and uh, opponents in the various fields. And so games as a service can be positively defined. And if you start with a negative definition, just from a rhetorical basis, as a lawyer, I look at it and say, okay, you're trying to steal bases. If you're making a video like this, if you're making an argument like this, you want to start out as neutral and as fair as possible. And when you start out by saying something like this, I look at it and say, okay, now I'm on guard. And one of the things that I want to put forth in this video is as amenable as I am to some of the notions he puts forth, like the fact that companies should try to have an end of life plan they should try to have a policy that allows people to potentially build their own servers to at least be able to somehow replicate the, uh, the service that they were provided when the game was live, that that's his fundamental thesis. That's the thrust of his argument. I'm amenable to that. But when you start out by saying it's fraud, when you start out by saying, well, games as a service are just about the company withholding things from you, when you call it propaganda throughout your video, you lose me. And I'm someone that's already amenable to your position. So just as a piece of advice, if you're making your own rhetorical videos or if you're making your own rhetorical arguments, you want to ease people into it. You want to be seen as a fair arbiter. And this gives away the game a little bit for me in the first 10 minutes. And that's just a comment on rhetorical negotiation, essentially, and doesn't really get into the law aspects of it, which we're going to see have its own problems. And it's one of the reasons that fraud really can't exist in this concepting is because of the ambiguity that's inherent in the, in the law. When I say that, obviously you saw the disclaimer at the start of this video or the podcast if you're listening to it on a podcast service, but I'm a United States-based lawyer. I'm a Michigan transactional attorney. I help companies get formed and funded and organized. I write EULAs. I write terms and conditions. I deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, but it doesn't mean that I am fully aware of every law everywhere and especially not laws that are outside my jurisdiction, including foreign laws. And he does reference a number of Australian and European Union laws, et cetera, et cetera. And those jurisdictions are known to be more protective and more onerous if you're coming from the company side in terms of what you can license, what you can't, what you contract for, what you can't. And the United States as a kind of fundamental process, if you take nothing else away from this video, has at its baseline a belief in the freedom of contract. This doesn't apply in every jurisdiction or in every case, and there are exceptions to every rule. But at its baseline, American law respects the ability of private actors to contract for what they want to contract for. And in this case, when we talk about games as a service, when we talk about games really in any respect, but we can get on that in another video, we're talking about a contract between a corporation and a user in which the corporation says what it's willing to offer the user in exchange for cash. And in this case, it says uh, we're willing to license the software with these certain restrictions, with these certain rights that we retain. And you can either decide to buy that license or you can decide not to. But the United States, in most instances, is going to honor the right of parties to contract for what they want to contract for. Um, moving forward in the video, we see the primary legal arguments that he makes are based on this Linus Tips thread uh, from a member called Delisiu. I think I pronounced that correctly. And he refers to this thread as 
really the crux of his argument and it's well researched and this is what he followed. So we're gonna go through this essentially bullet by bullet. We're gonna skip a few things because as I said, I don't wanna make this video a takedown of any kind. I really do respect people interacting with this on a regular basis. I think YouTube is greatly enhanced by people interacting with these things even if they're wrong, as long as it's a good faith attempt to be right. Uh, and so I don't want to dissuade that. I think this is a, a good effort and I think it's made with the best of intentions. So I don't really want to go through every item uh, individually. So let's dive into what is said here. And we'll start out with the title, which again, when we're talking about rhetoric, when we're talking about convincing somebody of something, you want to try to not go full internet or full Reddit or full wherever you might be otherwise anonymous and making hay with extreme positions. And so we look at the title here and it says, you own the software that you purchase and any claims otherwise are urban myth or corporate propaganda. So that starts you off in a specific mindset. They're not going to abide by any arguments to the contrary. In fact, they say any claims to the extent that aren't agreed to in these bullet points, which aren't terribly well sourced, uh, are corporate propaganda or urban myth. So as you're watching this virtual legality episode, I do need to inform you for disclosure reasons, apparently you're watching corporate propaganda. It wouldn't be the first time I was called a corporate apologist, and I'm certain it won't be the last, but if you could get in line behind the people that also call me a socialist or any other number of names on Twitter or Reddit, I would appreciate it. That being said, Let's take a look at what's actually said in this post. And again, this is the crux. This is the trunk of the legal arguments that are made in the Games as a Services fraud video. I haven't linked to all the various screens that he uses there. He does go through these on a fairly robust basis, but it does take him some time. So we're going to go through these bullets instead. The bullets start by saying a license is a right to use a property or intellectual property that belongs to somebody else. Absolutely correct. That's what a license is. It's permission to do something that you wouldn't otherwise have the right to do. And usually the license is made in exchange for money or potentially another service or another license. I, as a lawyer that works in business, draft licenses all the time. And I incorporate licenses into other types of agreements like distribution or reseller agreements. So I'm intimately familiar with licensing and how it differs from the actual conveyance of a good. Um, in this case, it says this software, when talking about it in a EULA, refers to the software intellectual property and not the copy of that intellectual property that you've purchased via a software license. This software, IP, is licensed, not sold. This software, instance license, is sold, not licensed or leased. So that's a fairly confusing way of saying a pretty simple kind of concept. Uh, if you go into GameStop and you buy a disc of software, when you walk out of the store with that disc, that disc is yours. That's the instance of the software. You can do what you like with it. And that's one of the conversations that have been happening throughout kind of copyright and intellectual property law is, is there an ability for the seller of that good initially, in the initial instance, to prevent you from selling the, the instance, the CD? And for the most part, the courts have come down uh, on a no answer to that, that there is something called a first sale doctrine, which precludes a copyright holder from preventing future sales after it has made its money from the first sale. Uh, but we're going to get into why that isn't the end of the story and why it gets these arguments kind of confused because they are limiting the concept of what true ownership of copyright means, true ownership of intellectual property means, solely to the right to distribute another copy of the, uh, of the software or the good. In this case, selling the CD or potentially on a digital basis, uh, selling the, the digital software. And that's kind of what has been discussed throughout the United States case law and what we see here. But it's important to note, it's not 
the exhaustive extent of the rights that a copyright holder has. Put a pin in that. That's the most fundamentally important thing that is missed in this video and in particular in this thread. The right to distribute the good is not the only right a copyright holder has and the first sale doctrine is not the only thing we need to be discussing when we talk about what intellectual property is. Um, they go on to explain the difference between intellectual property and the good. It's a, they talk about clothing and vehicles and TV. And when you purchase those things, you don't purchase the right to the intellectual property that underlies them. You don't purchase the right to the design of the car you bought. You don't purchase the right to the logo that's on your T-shirt. That's exactly right. That is entirely right. We're good so far. These bullets are mostly okay. Uh, it, he then says, or, or he or she, it's an anonymous account. This is exactly the same with software as it is with physical goods. You own your instance and have full property rights over it. That isn't the case. That hasn't been the case historically in court precedents. And when we get to why, one of the reasons is because for the most part in the United States, people that own things are allowed to convey them based on whatever restrictions they set forth. So yeah, when you go into Hot Topic and you buy a t-shirt, there aren't extra licensing terms. There aren't restrictions on use uh, that when you take that home, it's anything different. But you'll note there really isn't a license associated with the purchase of goods at all. That's because it's understood under the law that no license is being conveyed. So the copyright holder doesn't need to worry about someone inferring that they have a license to do something with the t-shirt. In fact, it'll be straight up infringement if they try to copy it. And that's essentially settled law. That's known law. Uh, the next bullet is they talk about ownership of a good transferring at the point of sale. And they get into this distinction between goods and services, which I'm going to tell you right now is not terribly useful in having this conversation. When we talk about what it is that Games as a Service does and the notion that it's a fraud, we're talking about copyright rights. That's where the main value that a company has when it makes software. It has the right to copyright. We're going to get into the Copyright Act in a second. But whether or not it's a good or service, they have the ability to copyright the code that they use to have these protections and what it is that they're conveying. And under United States law, for the most part, outside of certain exceptions, they have the right to limit how someone uses the, the code after they've purchased a right to use it, a license to use it. And that really is the crux of the problem here. And I'm not saying that it's definitive. We're going to get into a bullet that says, hey, this hasn't really been adjudicated much in the court system. And if you've followed virtual legality or if you've caught our segments on Help Us Out Hogue on Easy Allies, you know that that's in fact the case, that intellectual property law in general is not terribly well adjudicated in the United States, primarily because a lot of confusing modern topics aren't terribly well adjudicated because 95% of all cases get settled and a lot of those get settled without any kind of public resolution. But in copyright intellectual property law specifically, you're talking about large chip stacks. You're talking about big entities that are going against little entities that don't have a lot of skin in the game. So if you're an individual and you've purchased a game for $60 or $40, if it's on sale or something along those lines, you don't want to get into a fight with Disney. You don't want to get into a fight with Electronic Arts or Ubisoft because litigation is expensive. And a lot of these just aren't, don't make sense to adjudicate in that fashion. So they don't get up all the way to the highest level of the courts. You really need a kind of corporate on corporate fight to make that happen which we see in the precedents that we're going to look at, they really are corporations fighting corporations because they have enough money in play to make sense to adjudicate these, these kinds of conversations. The next bullet, we start to get into a little bit more of the iffy law uh, understanding. Uh, there are perpetual software licenses and there are subscription software licenses. 
that is a, a binary that isn't entirely accurate. It's not entirely inaccurate. Uh, but in, in general, the sentence structure here and the bullet here implies that a perpetual software license can't be a restricted license. It can't have other restrictions imposed on it. And really, no case that I'm familiar with, no contractual determination by a court that I'm familiar with says that absolutely no restrictions uh, can be applied, even in a perpetual software license context. You see very often one of the things that can be applied to a perpetual software license is that you have no right to reverse engineer the software. You have no right to dig in and figure out how it works and to go and, and make it better, make it differently. And that applies not just to games, that applies to enterprise software and things of that nature. So when we write a license as a lawyer, one of the things we have in there is you won't reverse engineer this, you won't introduce a virus and put it back up on our servers, you won't do a number of things with this software license that you now have access to. And we're allowed to put those restrictions on you even if the software license doesn't have a, a termination feature uh, on a temporal basis. It doesn't have a subscription kind of concept. This bullet goes on to say a perpetual license is non-exhaustive, non-exhaustive, non apologies, meaning that the right it grants is eternal, forever lasting, and never expires. We're going to see in a minute how that's not entirely accurate either. That perpetual license means absent another kind of interceding event, it won't terminate. But that doesn't mean that the rights holder and potentially the rights purchaser doesn't have the ability to terminate the license if they so choose. It just means that it doesn't have an automatic termination feature. A subscription kind of period, a period-based license, would say you have 12 months to use the software uh, and then it cancels on its own. That nobody has to really intercede to cancel it unless you pay more money or things of that nature. A subscription license is a duration-limited right to access a software or service. All the most common software, including games, OSs, and programs, are perpetual licenses. That's not true if only because we all know Microsoft Office 365, that's a subscription service. You pay it on a yearly basis, generally speaking, and that is very, very, very common software now. And so we see software as a service really starting to permeate uh, various aspects of uh, life in general. And one of the things that we can reply to now that is pointed out in uh, the uh, Cursed Farms video is this notion that games didn't always have this games as a service feature. It's new now that can go back to the way it used to be. And one of the things that I would answer to that is the fact that games as a service is a function of the internet and bandwidth and availability for uh, producers to adjust and otherwise have aspects of their products, software or games, that can be adjusted on the fly, that can provide additional services, that can live on the cloud, whatever it might be, that simply couldn't have been logistically possible not that long in the past. So when we talk about games as a service, when we talk about software as a service, again, if we're being entirely neutral and just trying to think of the reason why these things exist without going so far as to saying it's propaganda or it's evil or it's fraud, one of the things that should pop out at us is that the internet is a, is a much different thing than it was 20 years ago. And that this kind of service rendering, this kind of product, is entirely different from what could even be possible not that long ago. The bullets continue. They say some games that are sold via perpetual licenses like MMOs require an additional service subscription to use the base software with the publisher's own servers, with the software not being functional on its own due to the servers handling the game world's AI and other systems. That bullet is entirely a description of what we're talking about with games as a service. You buy the base software, it's the client software, and it interacts on a certain fundamental level with another piece of software that is elsewhere. Division 2 doesn't work if it can't reach Ubisoft servers. <clears throat> 
Destiny 2 doesn't work if it can't reach either Activision's or Bungie's servers. That's part of the reason there's this long-term kind of separation between Activision and Bungie is they have to logistically figure out how to maintain services uh, for Destiny 2 as they make their separation. And you can see that in some of the announcements that were made. The next bullet says a perpetual license is a product. And whenever a perpetual license is sold, it undergoes transfer of ownership upon the point of sale. Whoever owns a perpetual license owns the instance of software it grants a right to use the intellectual property of. That's correct insofar as you own the instance of the software. But then they go on to say, after the transfer of ownership of a perpetual license software, the seller of the license no longer holds any rightful say over anything regarding that non-reproducible instance of software represented by its perpetual license. And that is simply not accurate, at least as far as I know with United States law. And we're going to get into it when we go into the Copyright Act. But as we've already mentioned, when we talk about whether you have the right to distribute another copy of something, that's something that's been adjudicated. That's something that's been discussed. And they might have a good point that you might be have, you might be able to have the right to sell a digital good if the software enables you to do so. And that's really the issue from a Steam perspective or a PSN perspective or something along those lines. But you absolutely don't necessarily have... Uh, every specific property interest in what's being licensed to you. This bullet says that legal fact is not always honored by perpetual licensed software sellers, et cetera, et cetera. But again, without sourcing, without claims, this is just a, a raw kind of assertion of what it should be. And I'm not even saying that we necessarily need to disagree on what it should be. I'm not entirely certain that a lot of business models work in a, in a world in which the, sell, the purchaser of a license gets every and all rights to every bit of copyright in the, in the instance of the software that they've purchased. But that notwithstanding, this isn't what the law is right now. The next bullet talks about EULAs, which are what we're going to talk about quite a bit. But it says EULAs are not laws, but are sub subject to laws. That's true. Everything that we do is subject to laws. And corporations do not possess lawmaking powers. Also accurate. Many EULAs are not written by legal experts, but by people who just see the formats of previous EULAs and make assumptions from seeing those about what the nature of a EULA is, and they just copy and paste the terms they like the sound of from other EULAs. This is one of those areas where I would say objection assumes facts, not in evidence, uh, because it's, again, a raw assertion. And I can tell you from experience that every company that I've worked with, obviously as a lawyer, has me drafting their EULAs, has me drafting their terms and conditions, has me talking to them about what's likely to be enforceable, what may not be enforceable, but is still useful to have in the EULA, and other kinds of concerns about what their licensing agreement should say. In all honesty, if you are a product supplier, if you are making games or software or virtually anything else where a license could be conveyed, you really do need to have a lawyer look at your contracts because this is your livelihood. When we talk about a software company, we're talking about the lifeblood of the company. This is exactly what they make. And if you have a EULA that accidentally sells all of your intellectual property, you've got a problem. So you should use lawyers for your contracts, folks. If you're not, uh, then you should talk to someone who can help you with that. So I don't agree with this bullet at all. I think generally speaking, lawyers are drafting EULAs and they're drafting them in the auspices of whatever it is their jurisdiction of law happens to be. They, they try to make them comply with the law. Again, in the next bullet, we get into this kind of rhetorical, everything is evil effect. EULAs are also used as a tool of manipulation to psychologically ward off potential challenges and to provoke the type of customer behavior a publisher wishes there to be by claiming or by phrasing things without outright saying them in a way that suggests publisher rights and powers beyond what actually exist. 
There are countless examples of this, but one very familiar one is this software is licensed, not sold, which plays on the semantics of software, which was key in the Autodesk case, which is one thing that they poo-poo in this concept in in this comment as we're going to see, but it's just not accurate. As I just mentioned, we can draft EULAs that are perhaps unenforceable and can go into the gray area and get into a place where potentially different jurisdictions might find them unenforceable. That doesn't make them a manipulation to psychologically do anything to the customer base other than try to assert the maximum rights that are possible under the law. Uh, and if you find EULAs that aren't doing that, then you can absolutely call them out on it. One of the things that I've called out on Twitter and on YouTube prior to this video is the notion that you see in NFL football games or I think in soccer matches and some other sporting events where something comes on in the middle of the event that says any, uh, any transcripts or accounts of this uh, match uh, are copyright of the NFL uh, and cannot be distributed without our consent and things of that nature. And I usually joke on Twitter that that's ridiculous and obviously unenforceable that you can't uh, protect me giving an account of the Super Bowl to someone else that I watched it last night and I had these thoughts about Tom Brady or what have you. And so you, I don't mean to suggest that companies don't try to overreach on things on occasion, uh, as, as this says, with the object of psychological manipulation, uh, but it perhaps oversells the point a little bit to accuse each and every company that's making EULAs as trying to do something that is somehow nefarious or otherwise untowards. The next bullet says anything sold via a perpetual, meaning non-exhausting, eternal lasting forever license is a product that becomes the sole possession of whoever purchases it. And upon its purchase, all property rights, including all decision-making authority transfer from the seller to the purchaser. This is not accurate and we will discuss it in a little bit. The European Union's highest court, the Court of Justice, has ruled that software, whether sold via a license and whether physically or digitally distributed, represents a good rather than a service, and that any purchaser of a perpetually licensed software becomes the exclusive owner over that instance of the software, just as when they purchase any physical good. Okay, that's our first instance where we need to back up and talk a little bit about what that says. So they link, helpfully, to this European Union's highest court and the decision in question. And we've got an article here that isn't actually the direct primary source material, which I don't like to do necessarily, but I also don't want to spend days and days and days uh, researching European Union law uh, when I think this article does enough for what we can discuss here. So let's take a look. Public knowledge website says EU court, when you buy software, you own it. This is still controversial here in the U.S., in the physical world, something called the first sale doctrine is key to maintaining the free flow of goods. Simply put, the first sale doctrine means that once you sell something, you do not get to control it anymore. You have exhausted your rights to control distribution. It is why there are important things like libraries and used record stores and why you can buy art at garage sales. Going further in this article, skipping some of the summary that they did, it says EU court finds EU law is consumer friendly. The Court of Justice of the European Union found that a copyright owner exhausts the right of distribution to a copy of a computer program once he sells or authorizes the sale of the copy. When a copyright owner sells a copy of his copyrighted com computer program to a customer, ownership of the copy transfers to that customer. I think we're good so far. The court's policy behind first sale is that it prevents the copyright owner from receiving a windfall by being able to control and demand payments each time the copy changes hands. The customer who purchases the used computer program is authorized to download a copy of the program from the copyright holder's website. But 
The court points out that the copyright owner is still protected from copyright infringement because the customer who sells his copy of a computer program must make his copy unusable at the time of sale. They have to destroy their copy. It can only be one in existence, which is a continuing problem with digital copies, right? This keeps the copyright owner's right to reproduction intact. Ah, now that's interesting because we had just read in the previous comment that all property rights of the copy move over to the purchaser when this first sale doctrine is applied under EU law. However, we see here in the article itself a distinction between the right of distribution and the right of reproduction, which makes entire sense if you're familiar with copyright law because copyright law is not limited to a right of distribution. So let's take a look at United States law, which again, we're not going to go into European Union, European Union law because that's not what I do. So let's take a look at United States law just to get a feel for what are the copyrights. What are the bundle of rights associated with copyright? Here we have 17 USC 106, exclusive rights in copyrighted works. And without getting too deep into it, this is the list of things, this is the list of rights and protections you get when you've got a copyright. And it says you, as the copyright holder, have the exclusive right to reproduce the copyrighted work, to prepare derivative works. We've talked about that on Help Us Out Hogan, on virtual legality in respect to fan games and other fan-inspired uses of copyrighted work to distribute copies or phonorecords, uh, to tell you how old the Copyright Act is, of the copyrighted work to the public by sale or other transfer of ownership or by rental, lease, or lending. So you get to distribute it. In the case of literary, musical, dramatic, and choreographic works, pantomimes and motion pictures, and other audiovisual works to perform the copyrighted work publicly. In the case of literary, musical, dramatic, and choreographic works, pantomimes and pictorial, graphic, or sculptural works, including the individual images of a motion picture or other audiovisual work, to display the copyrighted work publicly, and in the case of sound recordings, to perform the copyrighted work publicly by means of a digital audio transmission. This is what we call in intellectual property law, the bundle of rights associated with being a copyright holder. But as you can see just from the beginning, without getting into public displays, which are really more about um, things like uh, plays, uh, and as they say here, sculptures and artworks and things like that. Without getting into that, we see the primary first three to reproduce, to, pre to prepare derivative works, and to distribute copies of the copyrighted work. When we're talking about the first sale doctrine, whether or not it applies to games as a service, we're talking about distribution and not reproduction. That's what the EU court actually makes a distinction between in that article that we just read. That the intellectual property holder doesn't need to be worried about losing its right of reproduction, which is one of the reasons it said that there was a problem, presumably in that case, because they're going to make the original seller destroy the work. So that's an actual re implied restriction. Uh, if that restriction didn't exist, as if the comment that we were just reading implied that all potential property rights in that copy existed, they wouldn't have an obligation to destroy it if they otherwise copied it and gave it to someone else or if they made derivative works based on it. And so we see that it's not as easy as what this comment is trying to say. And it leans heavily on first sale doctrine. And I think it's a worthwhile discussion to be had but first sale doctrine actually doesn't impact the argument that we're talking about with respect to games as a service very much. We're not talking about the right to sell a copy of the instance of the software. I think that that would have, be a problem if you were trying to sell it through Steam or Xbox Live or PlayStation Network because of the way those infrastructures are built. And maybe that can change in the next generation or maybe that can change with public pressure like that put on by Accursed Farms. But we aren't actually talking about that. We are talking fundamentally about whether or not there's fraud in respect to the fact that you can't otherwise get the server code with your existing instance, that you can't otherwise create a derivative work, which we see is protected under number two here, 
to the code that you have received the rights to in order to make it function after those servers are turned off. So these distinctions might seem minute. That's what the law is. And these minute distinctions are what legality is. And it's something to pay attention to when you're having these conversations. It's easy to skip. And so I'm not trying to ascribe blame to those comments or to the Accursed Farm video. I'm just trying to help explain why the precedent that they use isn't terribly helpful to the question at hand. Let's go back to the original comment. So we've looked at the European Union. They go over Australia. They go over Canada. I haven't looked at those jurisdictions very much because the quotes they put forth in this section aren't terribly useful. And then we get to the 2010 Ninth Circuit Appeals Court ruling that we know as Werner versus Autodesk. And we can see the description of what happened there in this Ars Technica article that's called No, You Don't Own It. Court Upholds EULA's Threatens Digital Resale. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit today ruled on a long-standing case involving used software on eBay, and it came to an important decision. If a company says you don't have the right to resell a program, you don't have that right. Could this mean the end of the resale market for all digital content? Yup, but the court said it had no choice. The case is Werner v. Autodesk, in which Timothy Werner made his living from selling items, including software, on eBay. Werner had picked up some old copies of AutoCAD from an architect's office sale, complete with their serial numbers, and he put them up on eBay, noting that they were not currently installed on any computer. Sounds legal, right? But there's a catch. Autodesk, the software's developer, forced all users to accept an agreement before using AutoCAD. That's a EULA. This agreement made clear that AutoCAD was merely licensed, never sold, and that's one license was non-transferable. Further, a licensee could not rent, lease, or sell the software to anyone else. You couldn't even physically transfer the disks out of the Western Hemisphere. Finally, if you upgraded to a new version, the old version had to be destroyed. The copies Werner picked up at the architect sale were old copies that had not been destroyed as required. Werner believed he was in the clear to resell them, as he had not agreed to any license. But after putting them on eBay, Autodesk repeatedly tried to shut down his sales. Werner, on the verge of getting banned from eBay, sued Autodesk and asked the court to declare his sales legal. A federal court did so in 2008, but Autodesk appealed, and today the appeals court reversed that earlier decision, today being 2010. In its view, U.S. first sale protections don't apply to Werner because he didn't buy the software from a legitimate owner, that the interceding purchaser of the license wasn't an owner. It was only a licensee. And so the first sale doesn't apply in that particular instance. That is actually a distinction in this case between what the EU court is saying, but it's worthwhile to note because it is an actual case on the books in the United States. That in turn is because the architecture firm had only licensed the software and that license could indeed allow a software company to prevent resale lending and even removal from the Western Hemisphere. We hold today that a software user is a licensee rather than an owner of a copy where the copyright owner specifies that the user is granted a license, as we see in EULA's today, significantly restricts the user's ability to transfer the software, and imposes notable use restrictions. That's a licensee rather than an ownership. And again, it's a, it's a sliding scale. When courts talk about these kinds of things, when they're making a distinction between whether a license has been transferred or whether an ownership right has been transferred, you can see here what they care about. They care that you call it a license. They care that you actually put restrictions on it, that it's not just called a license, but is otherwise exactly the same as ownership. And that's why they ask you to have a restrictions on ability to transfer and other notable use restrictions, such as reverse engineering, such as using it in competition with X, Y, or Z. If the owner is putting those restrictions in the license, then it's much more of a license than it's an ownership transfer. And the courts have generally held that in the United States. Uh, as counterpoint to this, they wind up bringing up a couple cases in their comments, and I don't want to skip it. So I want to go back to the comment as it was originally stated. And it says, in this bullet about that case, the, the comment here is, 
that litmus test that we just described appears to me to be based in ignorance of a lot of things. And so I think the Ninth Circuit Appeals Court was technically illiterate in 2010 and had their ignorance and confusion exploited by the Autodesk lawyers who took the court for a ride. Again, you start to get the feeling of what side of the spectrum this comment is being based on, and it's not terribly useful for a kind of neutral observation of the court as it stands. One thing you see a lot of in law school or otherwise in the business of law is we're not talking about what we would like the law to be. We're not talking about what this could potentially be in the future. We're talking about what we're actually looking at right now when we're advising clients, when we're talking to people about things related to the law. And you can't just dismiss out of hand, hey, I think that court ruling sucked, and so I'm not going to count it. And then it was also superseded in 2013, which just, in fact, isn't the case. Looking at the 2013 case that they cite here, it says the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that people in the U.S. and elsewhere are entitled to resell their copyrighted goods, which include purchase software, software licenses, without the copyright holder's permission, in accordance with the first sale doctrine, which states that a seller retains no decision-making authority over a product once they have sold it to someone else, which is not what the first sale doctrine says, which is exactly what we talked about with respect to the European Union. This supersedes the 2010 Autodesk versus Werner ruling, and therefore any claim in a EULA that a license is non-transferable between people is deemed invalid in the USA, just as it is in Europe. That is not the case. It means that it's more ambiguous, but there hasn't been a case specifically on the question of software transfer un under the Supreme Court rulings. So when we talk about precedent and the effective precedent in the Supreme Court, one of the things that is paramount to discussing how the law works is whether or not a Supreme Court decision expressly overturns or, or otherwise changes a previous decision. And in the absence of that express overturning, then you're supposed to try to read Supreme Court decisions as well as decisions in lower courts on the same basis um, on as much a possible way to read them both together as you can. You're supposed to not overread what the Supreme Court is doing to apply it to different kind of analogous situations. You're supposed to read it as narrowly as possible and apply it in that fashion. And if you've got a question on software, if you've got a case that you need to bring up, you can use a previous case that seems analogous as part of your argument for why the Supreme Court should rule in your favor on this other topic. But as is in the case with respect to Werner and Autodesk, the Supreme Court actually declined to bring up that case. So the Ninth Circuit's standing that the license was uh, going to be honored in the EULA was upheld. Uh, they didn't otherwise make a decision on it. It doesn't mean that they think that the Ninth Circuit was right, uh, but it does imply that they didn't think that they were so terribly wrong that they needed to step in at that point in time. Oftentimes, the Supreme Court waits for a circuit conflict uh, for the Ninth Circuit to make one decision or a different circuit to make one decision for another circuit or a couple of circuits to make an opposite decision, and they don't want United States law to essentially be in conflict. Uh, that doesn't appear to be the case right now, but that's also because, for the most part, corporations believe that EULAs are generally enforceable under those, promises, uh, under those premises that we talked about at the start of this video, which is that the freedom of contract is generally abided by in the United States. Uh, in this case, we've got a case where uh, someone was allowed to sell books that they bought from overseas to U.S.-based students without the publisher's consent. And their question there was whether or not uh, a publisher could sell lower-priced books in a different jurisdiction, and then somebody could essentially go buy them and bring them back across over into the United States and sell them there when the initial sale had tried to restrict the use of those books, the sale of those books, only to that other geography. And that was the question, uh, and that was where these folks in the Supreme Court decision decided that uh, the first sale doctrine applied to this good, to this book. But it doesn't necessarily broadly apply 
uh, to software, which is obviously one of the major industries in the United States uh, and is not a question that was directly raised before the Supreme Court in this case. So while I'm amenable to, hey, this is useful knowledge, this is useful that the Supreme Court has started to move towards decision making that would apply first sale doctrine to more and more copyrighted works, to say that it specifically applies to software uh, is not terribly clear. We see the last statement here that says the Software and Information Industry Association, which is about software, blasted the decision, saying it will send a tremor through the publishing industries, harming both U.S. businesses and students around the world. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the group's general counsel. So that's the losing side. Uh, so the Software and Information Industry Association blasted the decision, but we didn't get a quote on that in this article. And then we see that there was a dissent made uh, by Justice Ginsburg about whether or not companies should be allowed to sell different price goods in different jurisdictions. And if we remove their ability to restrict the resale of those goods in those different jurisdictions, that essentially the most likely outcome is that those other uh, jurisdictions are going to have higher priced goods and whether or not that's a good thing and whether or not that's a thing that the Supreme Court should be opining on. But that's separate from games as a service, obviously. And the point of bringing it up here was to point out that while it's useful information, it doesn't do what this comment says it does, which is that it doesn't overturn uh, Werner v. Autodesk, as best I can tell, uh, and without an express overturning of a decision like that, you essentially have these two decisions on the books that you have to try to read in concert with each other rather than in conflict. And so I think there's still an overriding question of what kind of restrictions licensees can put on the resale of the product, how much first sale doctrine applies to software sold in the United States. Uh, and I think that's a justified question. I think it's a question worth raising in these kinds of bullet points. But an important point in that discussion is that it's not terribly clear. As we talked about at the start of this video and podcast, you don't have a clear answer to a lot of intellectual property-based questions. And without a clear answer, you have a real difficulty proving fraud. Because we're going to get into the definition of fraud. But one of the things that it really requires is an intent to deceive, an intent to defraud. And if you're operating in a gray area of the law, if you're operating in an area of the law that isn't terribly well settled, it's very difficult to make the claim against someone that they have committed fraud when they could be operating within a perfectly legal framework. You don't know because it hasn't been adjudicated. And there's certainly a reasonable mind argument that they're perfectly fine, especially when we look at the Copyright Act and we see that even outside the first sale doctrine, there are other rights that attach to a copyright holder, and those are the rights that are more important to the question of games as a service and whether fraud has occurred. Going on to the end of this comment, uh, it really just reiterates that they are concerned about the Autodesk v. Werner case. It says, for me, this raises some questions about Autodesk and increases my impression that the judges of the Ninth Circuit Court were simply outside of their zone of comfort and familiarity when they made their ruling. And again, that's nice. That's certainly a conversation lawyers can have and certainly a conversation consumers can have about whether or not that was a good decision. I have that conversation about all sorts of Supreme Court and circuit court cases, but it doesn't mean that it's not the law of the land uh, for right now. He applies it only to the Ninth Circuit and that's technically accurate, although for the most part, absent a conflicting circuit decision, those circuits that are in the United States are going to look to other decisions made by other circuits, and they might discard those decisions, but they are going to look to them and see whether or not they agree with that kind of argument. And there isn't anything else on the books that I could tell, certainly nothing that was presented in this comment or otherwise in the video that goes against Autodesk v. Werner other than this statement uh, that that case uh, speaks against it. And the last case they bring up uh, is uh, a Lexmark's case, uh, which I've got right here, uh, which talks about whether or not uh, a patentee 
loses the right to uh, restrict the purchasers of goods uh, based on the patent that they hold. Uh, and one of the holdings here, which is important, it's interesting. Again, it's analogous to what we're talking about when we talk about copyright ownership. The holding is Lexmark exhausted its patent rights in the return program cartridges that it sold in the United States. A patentee's decision to sell a product exhausts all of its patent rights in that item, regardless of any restrictions the patentee purports to impose. That's all interesting. That's all useful. Uh, but if we look at the Patent Act versus the Copyright Act, as you might suspect just from the titling, they are completely different laws. And so while this is analogous to what we might apply to a copyright holder, we're not talking about patents. We're not talking about patented inventions when we're talking about a piece of software or when we're talking about a book or when we're talking about a movie. We're talking about copyright. And that is a distinct set of rights. The Patent Act is primarily focused on excluding other people from making what you're making uh, with a patent to, to essentially stealing your invention. And the Copyright Act is focused on more things, derivative works, reproduction, uh, and other things that are applied differently. And while the Patent Act and the Copyright Act are kissing cousins, in certain respects, they are different laws. And you can't apply a decision made on the Patent Act to a Copyright Act and it doesn't tell the whole story even if you could. So again, we find ourselves running around around, uh, around first sale doctrine and we've covered it all so far in my video, but we haven't even seen exactly what the claim of fraud is in the Accursed Farms video. So let's take a look at that right now. Um, this is about now halfway through the video and we see, uh, I've just got a, a, a clip up here that says games as a service equals 96% fraud. Uh, and the best way for me to talk about what it is uh, that his claim is, is this notion that um, because you're buying a game as a service, the company can turn off the servers at any point in the future and that'll break the game. And he equates it to coming into your house and breaking the disc. And he says it's 96% fraud because he went through a list of games that had released on a games as a service basis and he counted the number of games that were uh, released and have since been shut down. Uh, and he says, so it's only 96% of the time that it's fraud. And otherwise, uh, there are 4% that are still operating. And so those aren't necessarily fraud. He also concedes uh, that if you are paying a subscription fee, like World of Warcraft, he puts that up in a number of places in the video, then he doesn't have this claim because it's obvious that when you're paying $15 a month, it's a subscription-based license. It's clearly much more of a service than a good, which is how he wants to frame the games as a service products. And so those can't be fraud because it's obvious that you're buying 12 months at a time. And if they shut down the service at the end of the 12 months, well, nobody was defrauded on this basis. So let's break that down a little bit uh, by first taking a look at the definition of fraud. Now, this is a tricky one because fraud is kind of a common law term. It's used in different ways, in different respects, in different statutes. So the best thing to do when you're going to talk about it generally is to pull up a generalized law dictionary definition. So I've pulled up Black's Law Dictionary's free online edition to talk about it. But again, you should keep in mind the fraud definitions are going to be different depending on jurisdiction, depending on what you're trying to claim as fraud, whether it's wire fraud or mail fraud, whether you're trying to claim fraud in the United States or the European Union or Australia or Canada. But the general concept of what fraud is can be kind of looked at in overview in a legal dictionary. So let's take a look at that. The Black's Law Dictionary has as its defined term, what is fraud? 
as fraud consists of some deceitful practice or willful device resorted to with the intent to deprive another of his right or in some manner to do him an injury. As distinguished from negligence, it is always positive and intentional. Fraud as applied to contracts is the cause of an error bearing on a material part of the contract created or continued by artifice with design to obtain some unjust advantage to the one party or to cause an inconvenience or loss to the other. Again, the important part here is when we talk about what fraud is, it is always distinguished from negligence. It is positive and it is intentional. You can't commit accidental fraud. You can be stupid. You can create problems for another party, but it's not fraud. It's when we talk about the word fraud, we're talking about the intent to deceive. And that's really where I think in this in particular video, it gets caught up in some problems. Because when we talk about what is happening with games as a service, one of the things that he brings up is that they are deceiving you as to whether or not you can use your product in the future. And in my experience, that hasn't been the case. One of the things he brings up to establish that games are goods rather than services and that licenses essentially don't exist for this question, that you can't have restrictions on licenses, is the notion of digital movies and that you own a digital movie and it's a good and everybody understands that. But that's not in fact the case. So one of my favorite services that I use all the time is Vudu, which is Walmart's streaming digital movie service. And you can see here uh, that it uses a license. We've got the Vudu terms and conditions up right now. And you can see here, you can rent or purchase content. So it's got a button you can hit. You've got a movie in front of you. You've got Avengers Infinity War, and you can either rent it, which will give you a period of time to use it, or you can purchase the content. And when it says purchase, here's what it means. When you purchase content, you will be granted a non-exclusive, non-transferable, limited license to access, use in accordance with any additional terms that may be provided with your Voodoo compatible device, and view the content as often as you like, subject to the applicable restrictions described below. So essentially what you've purchased is a unlimited kind of rental uh, for a period of time uh, that uh, you can use as much as you want. You can watch Infinity War five, six, seven times uh, if you'd like, but um, it is subject to the restrictions here. It's, it's non-transferable, you see here, and it's subject to applicable restrictions otherwise put forth in the license. And so we can see here content restrictions. You understand and agree that the content is licensed by Voodoo from content providers. The movie studios, Voodoo doesn't make movies. All content is licensed, not sold, transferred, or assigned to you. Again, it's important to kind of make these determinations. When we see comments like the Cursed Farms video, when we see the comments like the one on Linus Tech Tips, one of the things that is happening in that video is they're trying to rhetorically frame video game companies as evil or this action is nefarious, that they're trying to get one over on you. And so I think it's worthwhile to point out that this is the lay of the land in how digital content is really shared, that it's licensed, not sold. This is what everything looks like. And it's not video game companies being particularly nefarious. Now, if you want to say the entire system is out of order, you can have that video, but it's not necessarily fraud as much as it's an I'm unhappy with the way things are. This goes on to say, you may not edit, modify, copy, distribute, transmit, display, perform, re reproduce, publish, license, translate, create, derivative works from, transfer, alter, adapt, sell, rent, lease, or sublicense any content or facilitate any of the foregoing. And those have some legal terms of art in there, but it essentially means you can't use your voodoo to open up a movie studio uh, or a movie theater and charge ticket prices to have people come in and, and watch Infinity War with you. 
Now, if you do that, chances are you won't be caught necessarily, but if you do it big enough, you will be caught and they will point to this license and they will say, you don't have the right to do that. When we license something to you, it comes with these restrictions. And this is very similar to a kind of software concept. It says any unauthorized copying or other activities that infringe upon the intellectual property rights of the content providers or owners of the content is prohibited. And you expressly agree to the automatic termination of the voodoo service if you engage in any infringing activities. We can shut your account off. We can shut everything down. And that's going to be more effective if you're heavily invested in our ecosystem than it is to sue you. So you need to be careful not to get in the way of these restrictions. Uh, and this is a contract. When you enter into a Voodoo account, you enter into this contract uh, with the folks that are providing the service. And for the most part, the United States is going to abide by the ability of people to enter into contracts of their choosing. In this case, they offer you this contract. And if you want it, you can use Voodoo. And if you don't, you don't have to use Voodoo. And that's generally speaking how the United States treats these relationships. Let's take a look at the back of the box of the division too, since I brought it up a couple times. Uh, or actually, this is the division. So this is uh, March 8th, uh, 2016 release. Uh, Tom Clancy's The Division. Uh, this has uh, When Society Falls, We Rise. Division is a fun game. I like Division 2 even better. Uh, check it out if you get the chance and if you're not otherwise dissuaded from these talks of fraud. But let's take a look at the big box of legal language. So it says a couple things. Online multiplayer requires a PlayStation Plus membership. Software is subject to license and limited warranty. Terms at UB.com. We're going to look at those in just a second. SCEA, Sony, may retire the online portion of this game at any time. S they, they're using the Sony infrastructure to get you uh, networked content. And they are acknowledging that not only can they turn things off, we're going to see that in their own terms and conditions, but Sony can turn things off. And I think it's absolutely fine for Cursed Farms or anyone else to rail against the rightness, the correctness of that being the way things are sold. But the fact that that's what's on offer doesn't make it illegal. It doesn't make it fraudulent. They're saying, hey, we're going to give you this game. You can give us $60. And essentially, we make no promises. It's essentially like buying a piece of real estate or a car uh, at an auction sale where they say, this is as is. We make no promises about what it is. We have disclosed that to you. And if it dies on the lot outside of this place, we're sorry. You bought it and that's what you get. And so that really is the nature of the way these contracts are operated. And I think it's okay to complain about that. I don't want to suggest that Accursed Farms is in the wrong to say, hey, look at how bad this is potentially. And we're going to take a look at the Ubisoft contract to kind of highlight that. So here we've got the standard Ubisoft end user license agreement. And this is what you basically have applied to most software that you're going to buy from Ubisoft. This is what they try to apply in general by having that kind of reference on the back of their uh back of the software box. Uh, this is the same kind of thing that would be applied in general when you're looking at an entry on Xbox Live or on the PlayStation Network, uh, and it's going to apply these things by reference. And it says, grant of license. Ubisoft grants you a non-exclusive, non-transferable, non-sublicense, non-commercial, and personal license to install and or use the product uh, and any product for such time until either you or Ubisoft terminates this EULA. So let's talk about a couple things there. First of all, you see how licenses are described. You want to say it's non-exclusive. So Ubisoft is allowed to sell other people copies of Division. It's non-sublicensed. It means it's theirs. And it probably should say for what they're trying to say, non-sublicensable. You're not allowed to sublicense it to someone else. Non-commercial and personal license. Again, you're not allowed to open up an internet cafe with copies of the Division and charge people to play it. You have a personal license. It's non-commercial. It's not for that purpose. And that's a restriction on your use. That's a restriction on what you bought. 
If you want to buy a commercial license, generally speaking, if Ubisoft is in the business of selling them, they can say, all right, it's not $60, it's $2,000, and you can get a different license from us because we're the copyright holder, and we have the right to say what we're selling. And then it says, for such time until either you or Ubisoft terminates this EULA. And that's an interesting point. We talk about perpetual EULAs. And we talked about earlier, perpetuality doesn't mean that it goes forever necessarily. It means it doesn't have a natural termination on a specific period of time. But here it says, Ubisoft can terminate the EULA, that you have a license to the product until Ubisoft terminates it. Let's take a look at what that termination right looks like. First, we'll take a look at the ownership statement. This license confers no title or ownership in the product and should not be construed as a sale of any rights in the product, which is one of the things they put in the contract, which the commenter online as tech tips suggests is illegal. And the enforceability of that would be a question for the courts. Uh, but I think it's designed to be as maximally protective as possible before that question is answered by the court. So I don't view it as fraudulent or otherwise problematic. But we wanted to talk about termination. So let's take a look at that termination provision. The EULA is effective from the earlier of the date you purchase, download, or use the product until terminated according to its terms. So the first time you use this thing or download it, you're subject to the EULA. You and Ubisoft or its licensors may terminate this EULA at any time for any reason. Now let's unpack that. Because remember, at the start of this license, it said, you have a license to use this product only for so long as it's not terminated. And then this sentence says Ubisoft can terminate it whenever it wants. So in a worst case scenario, you're looking at a, you're looking at a scenario in which you buy Division and Ubisoft gets your account, you try to fire it up, and they say, we've terminated your license. Ha ha. That's the contract that you entered into when you bought this product, and they're allowed to terminate it for any reason. That is maximally protective of the corporation and minimally protective of the buyer. And as I said at the top of this video, I'm in the business of negotiating contracts. So if I were in a corporate setting, if I were negotiating this contract for one of my clients, I would look at that and say, we can't have this termination provision in there because we look at it as the tomorrow problem. After you sign this contract, what could happen tomorrow? And we have this conversation with clients. We have this conversation with opposing counsel. And we say, okay, we don't want them to be able to screw us, to hurt us tomorrow after we've signed the agreement in good faith. Under the terms of this contract, specifically, Ubisoft could make your life miserable tomorrow, the day after you buy any piece of their software. They could eliminate your license to even Assassin's Creed tomorrow if they decided that they wanted to and for no reason other than the fact that they wanted to and they had your money already. So why doesn't that happen? And I think that's a worthwhile conversation because one of the things that the Accursed Farms video brings up is why do we do this? Why are we advocating for a legal action, for a lawsuit of some kind, or for a complaint to the Federal Trade Commission, rather than simply talking to the businesses about changing the way they operate? And one of the reasons they give for that is because the businesses don't listen and they don't do anything, and they're not protective enough of consumer rights. I think that's a fair argument. I think it's an argument reasonable minds could have and reasonable minds could differ on. But I think it's worth noting that contracts look like this in almost all cases. Ubisoft is getting piled on by me a little bit here because this is the license I have in front of me, but I would be willing to bet that the licenses to any other software product that you have, enterprise or gaming, look very similar, that the corporation reserves a lot of rights to itself to make your life miserable if they so choose. Why doesn't that happen? Because businesses are in the business of gaining trust and having customers over a long period of time. And if Ubisoft got a history of canceling everybody's license the day after they purchased it, you wouldn't be willing to purchase Ubisoft products uh, anymore. And so they would have to change their business model. And so I think it's a little bit unfair to say that this contract language is the be-all and end-all of the discussion. I understand and agree 
that the consumer in these instances has more risk than is probably appropriate for the relationship. But as a practical matter, it's worthwhile to note that for the most part, the rights that companies retain in these licenses aren't generally used in a matter that you wouldn't expect. Because to do so is a bad business practice, to do so gets them in trouble, and to do so might result in significant public action against them. Uh, and that's more of the political and kind of uprising basis than a legal one, because for the most part, your legal ducks are covered. One of the big items that I wind up talking to my clients pretty extensively about is that the words on the page can only protect you so much and they can only hurt you so much that in, in practice, you have to have a level of trust for your contract partners. You have to have a level of trust that what is going to proceed is going to work out all right. Because at the end of the day, when you have these contract terms, if you've got a breach of the contract terms itself, or if you've got a contract term that can otherwise harm you, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very expensive to go try to enforce it or to otherwise try to do something else uh, with your time or your money. So it's it, you have to have faith uh, that Ubisoft isn't going to screw you over, that Electronic Arts isn't going to screw you over, or Sony or Microsoft or what have you. And regardless of what you think about the products that they've actually delivered, for the most part, they haven't done that. They haven't screwed you over. They haven't done these things that they have the right to do. And we can see that with things like that Drive Club video that I made, which is Drive Club servers aren't going down tomorrow. They didn't go down yesterday. Sony made the announcement and said they're going down in a year. And they don't have to do that. They don't have to give these long form warning periods about when the servers are going to go down, but they do so because it's relatively painless for them to say such a thing. And they don't have any of the blowback that you might expect if they just turned it off tomorrow, especially for people that bought it, you know, yesterday. And so with a year long head start, they can avoid some of those headwinds. They can get out in front of it. And that's a corporation following its fiduciary duties, trying to do the best that it can in terms of communications, even after the people aren't there to support the servers on Drive Club anymore. And I can tell you from previous videos, and you can check them out in virtual legality, that the Sony terms and conditions and the PlayStation Network infrastructure terms and conditions essentially allowed them to turn off the online service at any time. Just as we saw on the back of the division box that Ubisoft reserves the rights under this license to terminate your license at any time. And, and they tell you that SCEA can terminate the infrastructure entirely at any time. So the division could not work tomorrow. And you've agreed to that by the nature of the terms and conditions on the back of the box. And you've agreed to it by the terms and conditions that are applied in this license agreement and probably through a click-through EULA that's applied at the start of that game. That's in the most cases, you're going to have a, a end user license agreement that you agree to as part of playing the game itself. And so when we talk about fraud, I think it's important to kind of dissect it and say, okay, you've presented all these legal arguments. And I've talked about why, at best, in, entirely in favor of you and entirely in favor of your stance, there's a question as to whether you're right. And I've talked about the fact that fraud requires intent. And I've talked about the fact that they disclose the existence of the license on the back of their box. They disclose the fact that even Sony could turn off their internet infrastructure. In all likelihood, they have you sign on to the EULA as part of signing on to the game at the start. And that cures most ills from a legal perspective. Disclosure, disclosure, disclosure is generally going to be a tonic towards deception. We're going to talk a little bit about the Federal Trade Commission because he brings it up at the end of his video. But for the most part, when you're talking about whether a company has deceived you, it's talking about whether it's lied. It's talking about whether you could know something that you don't already know about the product that you're purchasing or about the service that you're signing on to. 
in this case specifically, I think one of the pieces of evidence that Accursed Farms brings up is problematic for him because as we look at this chart, as we look at this screen, we see that he says that it is 96% fraud because 112, I believe, uh, games have turned off their servers and only 4% have uh, stayed on, stayed the course from their original sales. And he says that that means that it's 96% fraud. When I look at that, I see the opposite. I see when the first couple of these happened, you maybe could have claimed that the people didn't know what they were getting into and that maybe there was an element of fraud, that the companies didn't properly disclose what was happening, that the servers even could turn off because at that point in time, maybe people weren't aware of what was even being done technologically speaking. But now when you've got over 100 companies turning off their servers, I think it's a by far clearer claim that people know what they're getting into, know what they're purchasing. And if you do know what you're purchasing, fraud essentially can't exist if it's following historical precedent. If you know a game has a 50% chance of turning off its servers, and at that point, your client software won't be terribly useful, then it's very hard for me to consider you to have been defrauded because you do have this history of these servers shutting down. And so I think that point in particular goes against what he's trying to say. He talks a little bit more about it not being honest practice, like I said, about people going in to break the disc. Honesty is going to be a question here uh, because, again, they've disclosed everything that they're doing. And one of the real problems I have on a fundamental basis with this claim is the notion of whether somebody should be allowed to enter into this license. When we talk about the law, it's a blunt instrument. It's a cudgel. It essentially makes illegal actions that are otherwise legal. And so when you're talking to me about what should be fraud, what should be illegal, what should have an actual legal penalty applied to it, I need to hear exactly why this practice shouldn't be allowed, in particular for me. So if you say uh, the company shouldn't be allowed to turn off the servers for Division 2, and I say I'm totally fine with it. Uh, I'm happy to pay $60 for five years of Division 2, and if it turns off, uh, it turns off. And if enough people didn't sign on to it, I understand why they have to turn it off from an economical perspective, and I bet the wrong way, and that's okay with me. You say I shouldn't be allowed to make that decision, and then I have a problem with that. This is essentially a legal philosophy, an economic philosophy, about what should be legal and what should be illegal. I tell you this from experience, having worked with the law, having worked with regulators, having worked with government agencies and third parties that are in charge of discussing what's legal, what's not, especially the Securities and Exchange Commission and things of that nature, that you want to only use the law if something should absolutely be prohibited for another person to engage in. And if that's not the case, then I don't necessarily subscribe to your position that we should make it illegal. And I think that Part of the major problem philosophically I have with this concept is as much as we could dislike it, let's say I don't like games as a service. Let's say I don't like microtransactions and these live game services and things of that nature. And I'm sure there's a number of people that don't. Certainly seems like Accursed Farms is one of those. The problem that you've got is that a number of people do like it or appear to at least by paying the money. And essentially what I hear when you make an argument like this is that those people are wrong and I wish they would stop spending that money. We're not going to highlight it in this video, but one of the last slides he has on this video is essentially once you say that you need to vote with your wallet, you've lost the fight. And he, that's what he basically subscribes to because he's trying to uh, disconnect from the natural argument that I'm giving here, which is, hey, if enough people don't like it, they won't make money and they'll do something else. And he says it never works to vote with your wallet. But I think there's any number of instances where it has worked. 
you see Electronic Arts move entirely away from loot boxes because their 2017 initiative to add loot boxes to everything caused massive public unrest, caused big losses uh, in what they had projected for the money that they were going to make on their Need for Speed project, on their Battlefront 2 project, and they changed course. That's voting with your wallet. You see the DC Films Initiative and their comic book heroes essentially lose money all the way through the Justice League film, and you see them change course. That's voting with your wallet. The problem that is presented by Accursed Farms here is he's not happy with what people are voting on. He's not happy that people aren't paying attention and that they're buying these products as games as a service anyway. That's a perfectly reasonable position to have. I'm all for advocacy pieces that say, hey, people, open your eyes. Don't buy these products. You are not getting what you think you're getting. They're going to shut you down and, and everything else. I think at the best case scenario, you could read this video as that. But I do think it's incendiary. And I do think when you use words like fraud, when you use words like propaganda, when you have slides like this that call it 96% fraud, when you accuse people of bad faith, you lose a lot of folks that aren't on your side yet. And you don't want to do that, rhetorically speaking. And I have a problem with it because I don't think it entirely takes into account the good faith efforts on everybody's behalf, including these companies that are making a new kind of product and don't, at least as far as I can tell, intend to deceive about what they're doing. They put disclaimers out. I think everybody's aware of the fact that servers shut down. And so if you frame it as something different, I start to look askance at your argument. And at bare minimum, I'm making this video to suggest that if you want to have this argument treated more seriously, you want to treat it neutrally. You want to approach it from a neutral position that talks about what you are unhappy with without calling things fraud, without bringing up legal arguments that are tenuous at best, because that's going to get you the best result that you want at the end of the day. Another claim that he brings up, I believe it's down here, is he brings a claim of programmed obsolescence. This kind of dovetails into a notion that... Uh, these game companies are deliberately making games uh, that are going to be canceled, that are going to shut down, uh, and that it's fraud because they know it's going to shut down and they haven't released uh, in any circumstance that he can think of a time limit for telling people when they purchase the good that it's going to shut down on Timex. Uh, I think that is unfair, again, to the corporations and to the companies that are providing these services because I don't think they're sitting back there saying, we're definitely turning off the servers in 2021. I think what they're saying is if this is really popular, we will keep it going for forever, uh, just like World of Warcraft has been going for decades. And if it's not that popular, we're going to shut it down earlier. But we don't know what we don't know. We don't have knowledge when we start selling this product. We don't know Lawbreakers is going to fail any more than we know that Apex Legends is going to succeed off the charts, at least for a time. And so companies look at that and say, all right, if we're going to have a server component, we're going to reserve the right to play it as it lies and figure out what kind of services we're going to provide as we go along. And in exchange for us having the ability to do that, you're going to get a relatively low price. Generally speaking, on an economic level, if they can't do that, one of the things that he proposes is they should be forced to uh, give you at least the ability to run your own server. And in general, he kind of implies that he would prefer it if they had to uh, maintain some level of support for a period of time, although he disclaims that at the end of his video, uh, that if you're going to force that in general, just on a kind of neutral basis, you're going to have a higher cost. You're going to have a higher cost of services provided, and that's going to trickle down to the cost of the games themselves. Uh, when we think about a $60 product, it's a $60 ticket to this virtual environment. And maybe if they have another restriction, if they have another regulatory compliance component that he's suggesting, then maybe that's $65. I don't know. We don't know because we don't have those regula regulatory requirements in place. But it's worth mentioning because when you add those regulations, when you add those additional costs, in general, you're starting to shut down the lower end of things. One of the games that he brings up in his video is 
is a game called The Flock, which had a specific shutdown that was going to happen when a number of products, uh, when a number of deaths had occurred within the product. Uh, and he's talking about that because he doesn't know whether it should be exempted from his rules on shutdowns and, and disclosure and transparency. Uh, but one of the things I would point out to him is that seems to be from a smaller company. It's definitely not Electronic Arts or Ubisoft or something like that. And when you add these regulatory requirements, if you add these kinds of obligations, in general, you're going to have fewer and fewer of those low-end uh, services. You're going to have fewer and fewer of the people that are doing things uh, for a low profit margin, for those installations of art, as I believe he describes uh, the Flock game. Uh, and so it's worthwhile to discuss the negative implications of what you're asking for when you talk about additional legal compliance. Generally speaking, the big players are always going to be in favor of additional regulation and additional legal compliance because they can afford it and because it crowds out some of the lower entries in the field of economics. That's why you see discussions like Amazon talking to Congress and saying, absolutely, we'd be in favor of more social media regulations because we're already enormous and we can pay for them. And we'd much prefer to have the upstart squashed with just regulatory compliance and legal costs. So that's worth part of the discussion. And when he says, hey, there's no negative to this, there's nothing that the businesses couldn't already handle, that's worth mentioning as part of the discussion uh, in and of itself. Other kind of arguments that I saw with respect to the ownership concept, with respect to software as goods, is in respect to patches and versions. I think when you talk about whether you own software or whether you license the right to access that software, it's worth noting how the actual game industry functions right now, which is to say in almost every instance, you have patches that are pushed down on your game and you don't really necessarily have much of a choice to use them, especially if you are going to use some of the multiplayer services or stat tracking services, and they can fundamentally change the game. I think if he wanted to make a video that talks about, hey, I liked version 1.0 and you changed it to version 1.3, is that a problem? Do I have a case? I've always been fascinated by that question and, and think it's a hole in the law. I think there's a question as to whether or not somebody that really loved the loot cave when Destiny started should be entirely okay with them removing that on the next version and whether or not the product that they purchase is fundamentally changed. Obviously, they're still subject to the license. We just talked about that. But should there be additional protections? Should there be something that we discuss in the Copyright Act? I'm not, I'm not, not in favor of talking about changes in the law. What I am not in favor of is arguing that the existing law does what it says I want it to do solely because I want it to do that. I think a lot of people on the internet and in life in general get stuck in this situation where they don't like something, like the licenses that are being offered by Ubisoft or Electronic Arts or whomever. You don't like it, and so therefore it should be illegal. The problem you've got is a lot of people don't seem to have a problem with it. A lot of people are purchasing that product, myself included, and they don't have an issue with the licenses that they're agreeing to. And so when you say that it's fraud, you, you call into question your legitimacy and your argument, and I think that you should have tried to avoid that if you can the second kind of concept, and he does discuss this as part of the, the opposition uh, to what he's putting forth in his video, uh, is this notion that he's okay with a subscription service if it has a monthly subscription price. And that's distinct for him from games as a service not having that subscription price. I will tell you this. From an argumentary perspective, I think it's a mistake to ever settle on a position that says, since you're getting this free, it's bad. But if you paid a dollar a month, it would be okay. I think that's a loser. And I think what he tries to say is that wouldn't happen because game companies have tried to use subscription services in the past and they failed and they went to a flat rate model and that was great. I think he lacks imagination as to what companies can do if they were forced to comply with laws that restricted their ability to do games as a service rather than a subscription license and a subscription service term. I think it's very easy to characterize your $60 purchase as $5 for the underlying client code 
and whatever the rest of your purchase price is for five years of service uh, on, on their server and to just call it that and be done with it. And I think if you don't do that, if you ask for an overage price, if you say it has to be something above and beyond what the, what the base purchase price is, uh, I think uh, you're going to lose a lot of your fans and you're going to lose a lot of the people that might otherwise uh, agree with your position. And I think it's systemic to what your position is, which is that subscription services are okay. And what these really are are free subscription services. And I, I always hate to see the argument essentially be free isn't okay. Zero dollars isn't okay, but one dollar would be okay. And I think that's a fundamental flaw in his position. And I don't think his argument on the opposite end from a practical perspective uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, in terms of the other opposition points that he brings up, he says, uh, EULAs, uh, the law says they're wrong and that Lexmark's uh, case says you can't use a, a EULA uh, and good luck defending corporations that want to fall on the backs of their EULAs. Obviously, I've just spent however long that I've been doing this video telling you that contract restrictions are generally okay. None of the cases that are brought up in his video or in that comment suggest that software restrictions on licenses aren't okay. You've got some analogous cases that are interesting and that could be brought up in future cases regarding software restrictions and software contracts that I'm amenable to saying, hey, those might apply. But when you've got a patent case and you've got a sale of books case from international boundaries as your sole arguments that software restrictions are suddenly void, I've got a major problem with the strength of your case in the video. So to then just dismiss it by saying, Lexmark says EULAs are wrong and the law says they're wrong, uh, is entirely incorrect for what the strength of that opposing argument is. Uh, these companies, and in general, the United States, have always backed the right of private individuals, private entities, to engage in contracts on whatever rights they deem fit. And so if you're going to sell something, you're allowed to put restrictions on it in most cases. First sale doctrine is an exception to that, but it doesn't necessarily speak to software restrictions, period, and it definitely doesn't speak to the games as a service fraud that you're claiming in this video. So you wind up getting stuck in a little bit of a rut and it doesn't answer the fundamental question about whether it's fraud. Uh, he addresses some other comments. Uh, people could say that you're entitled to the client software and you're otherwise trying to force people to provide the server software. He says that's fair, but he wants to give a chance to folks to play after the shutdown. Again, from a practical perspective, I'm all in favor of this. I'm all in favor of a general push towards making companies try to have some functional end-of-life plan uh, that would allow people to continue to use the software. But I think he is a little bit uh, either disingenuous or, again, lacks imagination on why companies that don't otherwise currently operate software instances might care that someone could operate it in the future. Uh, one... I think it's worthwhile to note exactly why defunct copyright holders might otherwise prevent derivative works from happening in their copyright period. And that's because of what it can be associated with. So you're Ubisoft and you shut down Division because Division 4 is out by now. And somebody wants to create a private server uh, and you, under this law, under whatever rules that Accursed Farms gets advocated and gets passed, you're allowed to do that. And you are also allowed to modify it so you add some... Uh, white supremacy symbols, or you add some other things that are otherwise untowards, uh, but they're now in the division. They're posters and things that are uh, applicable to the division, and photos get out on the internet. And even if Ubisoft isn't selling division at the time and has currently moved on to division four, or perhaps an entirely different series, that is still impacting their intellectual property, the goodwill associated with their brand. And we have to decide whether or not companies and copyright holders in general should have the rights that they currently have to prevent that kind of thing from occurring. And in general, the law has said, yeah, copyright holders get to preserve that value in their copyright. 
first sale doctrine doesn't impact that because you're not making derivative works. You're not reproducing copies. You're just selling an existing instance. And so I think that's by far the strongest claim that's made in this video is maybe you should have the right to sell a digital instance to someone else and that should be okay. But that doesn't answer the question that's at hand. And I think it's worthwhile to point out that the reason we can't do that is because it could still negatively impact the goodwill of the company because the company could otherwise be reserving the right to sell another product in the future based on its intellectual property, which it spent millions creating. Uh, and so it's generally thought of in the law that the copyright holder is the best positioned to know what it wants to do to maximize the value in the, in the intellectual property that it created. Now, I do agree that there should be some changes in the law that allow for preservation. I think you start to see that with the Library of Congress decisions and things like that, where you have server code that can be put in place in museums and things that are maximally protective and you don't get into the same situations with derivative works. And I would like to see that proceed. And I'd like to see some of that codified in the law. So we're in agreement to Cursed Farms and I, but we're not in agreement on the notion that the existing law prevents the copyright holder from doing the current things that they're doing. And certainly we're not in agreement that it's fraud. It says... Uh, he wants end-of-life plan. He wants to have people control over IP. Uh, and he also adds in a little bit here that says, if you're in a, even in a free-to-play game, if you paid for a sword, you should have the right to keep it in the future or else it's infringing on your property rights. I think that kind of highlights the issue with this overall concept of what he's presented here. I understand being miffed about that. I understand buying 100 gems in a game that decides it's going to shut down in six months and being really unhappy with the fact that you bought the 100 gems uh, and go to seek a refund. I don't necessarily agree with the person that bought a Fortnite sword and Fortnite shuts down in five years or 10 years or 50 years. Uh, and you should have a perpetual right to that sword if the game doesn't exist. Because I don't think that companies should have to use their resources in the fashion that you have determined and that they have not determined. And he he tries to minimize this. He tries to say in a number of instances that we're talking about a day of support or a number of hours of support, and that should be okay with companies. But I think that minimizes what we're actually talking about here. One of the things my old boss used to say when we're talking about contracts, especially personal contracts, uh, is that there's no slavery in America. You can't actually force somebody to do something. You can seek damages. Uh, you can do other things within the contract terms, within the four corners of the page. Uh, but you can't necessarily, and you usually can't, force anybody to do anything for you. And when we start talking about, hey, they should have to give this support uh, after the game is, is out, uh, yes, if you've built that in, if it's part of the contract language, okay. If it's not, if you're trying to impose this by law, what you're really saying is if they don't do this, they should have to pay fines, or they should potentially be imprisoned in terms of their executive officers and things of that nature. So you really want to... And be careful with that kind of thing, because I think you have a problem with enforceability as it is. And again, when we talk about regulatory compliance, you have to remember that you're going to be hitting the smaller companies significantly harder than the bigger companies. If you're talking about a six-person group out of their garage that wants to put together this cool art project like the Flock or whatever it might be, and you, auto, you also impose a legal requirement that they maintain the server or that they give up their, their server code or whatever it is that it winds up looking like, that's going to be an increased cost on the margin. And maybe that affects only one out of 20 games, but it's still one out of 20 games. And it's worthwhile to consider when you're talking about these, these legal items. Um, those are the primary kind of opposition points that I wanted to just kind of counter a little bit from what he brought up. Uh, I did want to bring up the uh, 
kind of argument frames that he has right at the end of his video just to talk about them a little bit more uh, rather than go through the whole hour and 10 minute video on this video. Um, just to look at the bullet points. He says, conceptually, games as a service does not have the limitations of any other known service. It removes consumer rights and traditional expectations for how long a consumer can use their product. No reason, no person can be reasonably expected to repair the game once the servers have been shut down. While some games as a service have been restored due to years of reverse engineering and decryption, this will be impossible for streaming-only games like Google Stadia. The service features of games as a service do not require games to be destroyed, and the only apparent benefit of destroying games is it saves an hour to a few days of work for the developer. Again, I think this is a bit disingenuous. I think it comes from a good place. I think he's angry about games as a service and he's angry about seeing games that he has loved that have this server component go away. Uh, but from a legal perspective, the product that you purchase, the license to access this game has not been destroyed. Uh, you have purchased a license that has specific restrictions. And as we talked about just now, you've purchased in specific the client software end of this thing. And that client software goes and it talks to server software. It talks to something else if it's, you know, if it's structured in a different way. And your instance, after the servers are shut down, is still fully functional. It still does exactly what it's supposed to do. It goes out and it asks for information from the Ubisoft server or from whoever. Only in this instance, the Ubisoft server isn't there. It isn't there to respond. And so your client software can't do anything. But on a purely legal basis, it's still doing exactly what it was programmed to do. And so when we talk about destroying the game, again, I think you're giving up the rhetorical ground that you shouldn't have to give up. And it doesn't benefit you when you start there when you're talking about these things. So you've got a game that exists. You still have a game that exists once the servers are shut down. It's just that it can't make the call it needs to make. So if you want to tell me that you've got a game and you don't think that the server call is real, that's a different question. We actually see that in some respects when the Library of Congress and other decision makers have talked about DRM features that just have to make a call back to the home office to make sure that the game is legitimate. When that's the case, for the most part, people are allowed to disable that because that's just a call that is designed to prevent piracy. And so we've started to make exceptions in the copyright law. In a game like The Division, where the enemies are clearly server-based, where the actual damage being done is server-based, where the loot tables are server-based, you actually are getting a service of some kind. And so it's disingenuous to suggest that the service component doesn't exist at all. I think the easier way to frame a games as a service is that you've got a game, a client-based software, and you've got a kind of maintenance contract that goes along with that. In the corporate landscape, when I'm negotiating these contracts, we put those together all the time. We have an application and we have a maintenance contract. Oftentimes, the maintenance contract is more expensive than the application itself. So here we've got an application and a free maintenance contract. And I hesitate to see how that is worse for the consumer than an application and an expensive maintenance contract. So I'm coming at it from a different perspective, but I think it's a worthwhile perspective. And I certainly think it should caution against the use of the term fraud. Uh, let's see this next slide here, which should be just a few seconds away. Um, he makes a couple of arguments for preservation. He says, games are unique, artistic experiences, similar to art. Games as a service are one of the few, if only, forms of modern media that cannot be preserved. The inability to preserve games as a service is due to artificially imposed limitations and not real-world constraints. About 97.5% of sampled games as a service are left in an unplayable state with no help whatsoever for customers to run them upon shutdown. And most civilized cultures see the preservation of art as having importance. So there's some kind of uh, overall philosophy there, but I can agree to the general comment. As you know, if you've seen the video that I referenced at the start of this one, I believe wholeheartedly that we've got a current issue with the preservation of video games as they currently exist, that we've got an issue with 
uh, how to save these experiences that we've had, particularly starting in this generation, but also to some extent in the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 generation, and that we should be doing something to try to help the law better characterize these software pieces and this technology in order to facilitate that preservation. I'm in entire agreement with the basic concept. I'm not in entire agreement with the notion that the law currently requires X, Y, or Z, or that the current companies are committing fraud by not doing X, Y, or Z. In fact, when the third bullet says the inability to preserve games as a service is due to artificially imposed limitations and not real world constraints, I agree. I disagree wholeheartedly. I think what we've got is a structure that requires a server call, and what you're trying to impose when you say games as a service is a fraud and you've ask for these legal requirements, you're, you're trying to impose a requirement that the company either give up its intellectual property, which the Copyright Act says is theirs exclusively and theirs to decide what to do with, or it's forcing them to host their own server, presumably at some cost, because in general, if they're making money, they're going to keep the servers open and they'll turn them off when they're not making money anymore. So you're asking them to con continue a server that's no longer making any money and for no reason other than to advocate this preservation. I will tell you that that's not a useful uh, solution because companies go bankrupt. Companies don't exist anymore. And so if that happens, there's really nothing you can do to save it, even if you've got a legal requirement that they maintain a server, because it's just going to go away. So I, I think, again, Accursed Farm's heart is in the right place. And I think it's worthwhile to discuss potential changes in the law. But I don't think it's worthwhile to accuse these guys of acting in bad faith. I don't think it's worthwhile to say that because you're unhappy with what the license says, which is that we can turn off the servers at any time, that it's somehow disingenuous, that it's bad, that it's programmed obsolescence or these other propaganda type terms that you throw at the companies. They're disclosing exactly what's going to happen. And it's up to the consumer to decide whether they're okay with that happening. And you can disagree with what the consumers have decided. You can say, hey, the consumers are stupid and they should not be agreeing to these licenses because look, Hogue just pointed out that Ubisoft can turn off your license in two seconds and that that's a problem. I can be entirely amenable to that. I think it's fair to point that out to people. I think it's fair to say, hey, you guys should pay more attention to this. But I also think at the end of the day, if other people, if the millions of other people decide, hey, I love The Division 2 and I'm willing to pay $60 to get that ticket to Disney World so I can shoot the terrorists, and if it turns off in two years or three years or four years, hey, that's what I bought and that's okay with me, I think at some point you have to say the people have spoken and they're okay with this. And even if you're not okay with this, you can advocate for changes. You can advocate for a different belief system. You can point things out like you did in this video. But at some point you have to say, uh, the other people disagree. The other people who are purchasing this product are okay with what's being presented. And just because you don't like the license that's being presented, just because you think it's unfair, doesn't mean that person X, person Y, or person Z shouldn't be allowed to enter into that contract if they otherwise don't have a problem with it. And I think that's fundamentally where I wind up on this argument is for the most part, I'm with you. I'm willing to advocate that there needs to be some changes to the law to allow for preservation, to better help preserve this legacy of video gaming that I've loved my entire life. Uh, but to tell other people that they can't enter into a license, that the company can't offer a license to them is myopic. And it does present, present problems in and of itself because it will change business models if you impose those kinds of things. If a company can't say they can turn off the servers at any time, on the margin, a game is going to be more costly to make. They're going to have to be more careful about what games they make. 
You might see uh, a pipelining of more AAA-oriented endeavors that are more Division and Destiny-esque and less the Flock-esque because companies can't afford to take the risk if you can't cut off the servers. If you have to commit to certain periods of time, if you have to commit to give up certain pieces of intellectual property, then that intellectual property doesn't get created. Then those games don't get made. And that might seem extreme, but on the margins, that is what happens. When costs go up, supply goes down. And so it's worthwhile to mention, if you agree with this argument entirely, that nothing is without cost when you impose additional legal requirements and additional regulatory restrictions. The last couple items here, we skipped the legal arguments page because it just discussed the cases that we've already gone over in this video. Is our perpetual software licenses acting in accordance to the law if they're being revoked in real world terms? Again, they're not being revoked. You don't want to steal bases when you're making legal arguments, when you're making arguments to convince people of things because they're not necessarily on your side at the start of the thing. They're not being revoked. You still have a perpetual license to your software. You can still fire up whatever turned off game you want uh, as long as you have a copy of it. It just won't do anything. So you have a license to what the client software was and it goes and it calls for a server and nothing comes back. So the product doesn't work uh, as it used to, but it still works in so far as it turns on, it compiles, whatever it is. And that doesn't mean that your license has been revoked. As a matter of fact, if your license had been revoked, it wouldn't do anything. Uh, your disc would disappear. They really would come into your house and break the disc. Is it legal for sellers to break the product after the point of sale and provide no possibility for repair? Again, we've talked about that. But for the most part, legal restrictions put into a license are going to be honored by the court system in the United States. Sellers, for the most part, especially copyright holders, have the right to restrict certain uses when they license the ability for someone to use a piece of software. That really hasn't changed regardless of the analogous cases that they've presented. Is there any penalty for repeatedly selling defective products with no disclosure as to when they will fail? Again, two points here. You, you, you take the word defective and you imply that it wasn't functioning when you purchased it. Obviously, when people purchase these games, for the most part, absent, you know, Fallout 76 or other issues, Anthem, uh, with actually running the game, they work. They work, but they don't work at some point in the future because you can't make the server call. With no disclosure as to when they will fail implies that the company knows when they will fail. I will agree. Hey, if a company knows that they're going to turn this off on Tuesday and they're selling it to you now anyway... Uh, there might be a case to be made that they're deceiving, that they're committing fraud at some level because they know what they're going to do. The companies are in their, in their best interest to not know what they're going to do. And they certainly don't know what they're going to do. If you've ever actually interacted with these corporations, uh, even of any size that you might think are well-oiled machines, uh, they don't necessarily know what's going to happen. They put products out there on the hopes that certain things will happen, and then they see what happens. So there's no disclosure to be made other than the fact that they could turn it off at some point in the future, which is a disclosure that they make. In fact, Ubisoft goes so far as to say Sony could turn it off, and there's nothing they could do about it. And so... I think it's disingenuous to say that they're defective and it's disingenuous to imply that the company has any idea when the servers will be shut down. He goes on to say you should potentially uh, contact the Federal Trade Commission. And that's the last thing I really wanted to say on this video, which is to talk about uh, the Federal Trade Commission and its ambit uh, under the Federal Trade Commission rules. And we've talked about the Federal Trade Commission at length, so I don't want to belabor the point here. If you're interested in the Federal Trade Commission rules and how they've been imposed on, in particular, advertising and influencers and other areas of potentially unfair or deceptive uh, practices in commerce, 
please do check out other uh, videos on virtual legality. I've got videos on how influencers were used to market Apex Legends. I've got discussions of how uh, the roadmap or the lack thereof in respective Anthem could potentially be deemed a problem for what they've gone out there with in terms of marketing. I've got a number of videos on that topic in virtual legality. Please do check it out. But I wanted to highlight exactly what the Federal Trade Commission does. It says... The unfair methods of competition in or affecting commerce, that's the sale of goods and services, and unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce are hereby declared unlawful. Not terribly helpful. It's a blanket provision. It's an umbrella provision put forth in the federal law that says essentially the Federal Trade Commission can can promulgate rules. They can create rules that mark what they will deem unfair or deceptive acts. But what I want you to take away from the end of this video is the same thing that I put forth in the middle of this video, which is in order to be deceptive, you have to be trying to deceive. And for the most part, if you disclose every bit of what you are putting forth in your license, if you say this software is licensed and not sold, if you say the servers could shut down at any time, if you say you're restricted in your use of this license in ways X, Y, and Z, for the most part, the Federal Trade Commission is going to look at that and is going to say, you disclose the necessary material aspects of what it is that you're selling, this license to this software, and that's going to be okay. It's not unfair and it's not deceptive. There are exceptions to that, just like there are exceptions to every legal rule. And those could be as little as, hey, it needs to be higher in the EULA. If it's going to be a statement that the server can shut down, it needs to be in bigger type than the rest, and it needs to be on the first page, or it needs to be on the last page, or it needs its own box. Uh, and the FTC can do those kinds of things. But outside of that, if the disclosure is deemed su uh, sufficient, uh, then for the most part, you're going to be okay with Federal Trade Commission rules. Again, that's a broad statement, just like it's a broad law, and there are exceptions to every rule. But as a general statement, disclosure is a tonic to deception, and fraud cannot take place without willful intent. So ambiguities in the law, like the ones we've discussed on this video, pretty much preclude the application of fraud to what we're talking about in respective games as a service. I don't want to say never. If you're familiar with any lawyers in your own life, you know we avoid absolutes. Absolutes are for the Sith. But in almost all instances, absent a willful intent to deceive and with sufficient disclosures in your EULA, on the back of your box, on your website... And with the knowledge that, hey, 112, however many games have already shut down their servers, so the law is going to essentially assume a certain amount of osmosis from consumers just based on the fact that this has been an ongoing practice and that consumers shouldn't be surprised by it. Those are all going to speak against treatment of this action as games as a service as fraud. It's going to speak against treating it as deceptive trade practices. And it's really going to speak against significant action being taken by the law in respect of these things. So it's worthwhile to discuss how that's a problem for preservation. It's worthwhile to discuss how maybe we should look to change this. But absent actually changing it, it is not useful to suggest that the law currently requires someone to bring legal action against the companies, that the law currently would otherwise ban the practices that we see in the Division 2 or in Destiny 2 or any other live services or games as a service, and that if you don't have the law backing you, it doesn't make sense to just pound the table and say that it's propaganda, to say that it's deception, to say that it's psychological manipulation, to say that it's fraud, that you lose the game when you jump to the kind of extreme rhetorical devices. And I would prefer to see video game preservation treated as a serious and intellectual topic for serious folks to try to get fixed. 
So I, I say this out of the bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate Accursed Farms tackling the issue. I can see that it's important to him, and I agree that video game preservation should be important to a lot of people that have this hobby as a passion, that seek to have video games in their lives on a continuing basis and would seek to go back to those games that made up their lives 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I am completely sympathetic to the point. But I think that when you start by calling things fraud, when you start by saying that this license that's being offered should be illegal, even if everybody around me is okay with it, when you say things are deceptive and manipulative, you lose me. And I think you don't want to lose me because I'm about as sympathetic as you could get on these topics. That's been virtual legality. It's been however long it's been. I hope it was helpful to you. If this is your first time on the channel, please do like, please subscribe. I'm talking about these issues on an ongoing basis. Uh, and I'd love to get this engagement. I'd love to get the community talking to me about why I'm an idiot and why I'm completely wrong on this video or on any others uh, or why I'm right. I love having those conversations. I don't mind anybody as long as you're not doing ad hominem attacks or personal attacks. I don't mind anybody coming to me and saying, hey, I think uh, you've, you, what you said was wrong, and here's why. I think that's how we learn. I think that's how we engage and how we grow. And I want uh, to once again say thank you to Accursed Farms. As much as I disagree with the way that it was done and with the rhetoric used and the kind of incendiary uh, topic names given, I want you to know uh, that I am entirely in favor uh, of what you are trying to do in preserving video games, and I want to just see it done uh, in the best possible way that it can be done. Uh, if you want to get together at some point and have a, a stream or a chat or otherwise to discuss this stuff uh, more fulsomely, I'm happy to do it. Uh, but I did want to get this out there because I do think there are misconceptions in the law. And I think you were led astray a little bit uh, by a poster on Linus Tech Tips that clearly uh, has a particular perspective. Some might call it an agenda uh, that they want to articulate against kind of corporate contract making. That's fine. Uh, but you always have to be cautious when you're using a single source as your kind of primary trunk of argument uh, that that single source uh, isn't a little bit biased. Hey, every human being on earth is biased. This video has my own proclivities and philosophies and legal understanding and expertise built in. Um, so for the most part, if you can avoid taking just one voice on a topic, I recommend it. And I'd be happy to talk with you about it in the future. If somebody knows them or otherwise wants to forward this video to them or to podcast them, please feel free to do so. Again, I say it uh, not to take anybody down. I'm not in that business on YouTube or elsewhere, uh, but simply to try to help educate and try to inform. Uh, so that's been Virtual Legality. If you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Please share it around if you think anybody would be interested. If you caught it on a podcast service, thank you so much for listening. Please review it on the podcast service that you're listening to it on, or otherwise share that podcast with anybody that might be interested. And I will catch you on the very next Virtual Legality. <laughs>